It's just after midnight, Monday, April 18th, and you are listening to another edition of the Midnight Ride Podcast. I am Connor Coughlin, and my partner in crime, Paul Runyon. I don't know where he is this week. He's off jet-setting around the globe somewhere with his family. We will find out which 10-star vacation spot he visited next week. But you and I have a lot to talk about. I hope you had a happy Easter weekend with your family after a very eventful week. So let's get to it. I want to start, though, with our poll from last week. Remember that text exchange that Paul had with one of his buddies, a former Reagan Republican who went woke? Well, here's the listener feedback. Our question on Twitter was, have you ever abandoned a friendship over politics? Hope you're following us on Twitter, at Midnight Ride Pod. The results of this poll were a little surprising to me, maybe not to Paul. Just over 44.2% of our respondents said that they had abandoned a friendship over politics, while 55.8% said they never had. So more than half, a majority of Midnight Ride listeners said they had never abandoned a friendship over politics. Sadly, I'm in the first group. I've not only exited friendships, but I've also distanced myself from a couple of family members while Paul said he never had. So Either Paul is a much bigger man than I, which I already concede, or maybe his friends are a little less unhinged than some of my former buddies. But either way, this is a phenomenon that goes far beyond ghosting friends and walking away. People are moving out of states where they've lived their entire lives and going to places where they feel more comfortable. And states, as we'll talk about a little later on in the pod, are passing laws to attract their kind of people. On the internet, as we've seen for several years, partisans have jumped into their own echo chambers. And that extends to our young people at universities, where this young flock of snowflakes will shout down or even physically assault anyone expressing ideas that deviate from what they've been indoctrinated to believe. Some of our young people actually believe that differing opinions constitute violence. So To call this a dangerous political divide is a gross understatement. We are in a place where we have not been since the 1850s. And if you think that's an exaggeration or you think I'm being hyperbolic, let's examine the events of the last week. And we'll start, of course, with the announcement by Twitter on Friday that they have chosen to reject Elon Musk's bid to buy the company, instead electing to put out there a potential poison pill provision, which will kick in if Musk acquires more than 15% of the company. Twitter will allow, in that instance, other shareholders, people not named Elon Musk, to buy more shares in the company at a lower price, thus reducing Musk's share in the company. Now, of course, the reason it is called a poison pill provision is that this will lower the value, it will dilute the value of all of Twitter's shares. All of Twitter's biggest shareholders are applauding this. The largest shareholder of Twitter, it's no longer Elon Musk, is the Vanguard Group, an investment fund manager, which recently bought enough shares to surpass Musk. They own a little over 10%. And there are other investment and retirement funds that also own significant stake, as well as, well, you know, somebody who's not exactly interested in free speech, the Saudi royal family. But let's get back to the investment fund managers for a second. Many of you 
may be unwittingly Twitter shareholders if you have retirement funds with Vanguard or BlackRock, et cetera. So let's just recap the value of Twitter as it pertains to Elon Musk. When he bought his shares, his 9% of Twitter, Twitter was at $39 a share. And on the news of Musk joining the team, it jumped to $52 a share. After the events of the past week, it's down to $46.66 per share. Musk is offering $54.20, which is an additional 15% gain. But from if you go back to before he bought, that's a total of 28% increase from when Musk purchased the stock. Now, if you are a Vanguard retirement fund holder or BlackRock or anybody else, are you comfortable with your hard-earned money decreasing, as Twitter shares will almost certainly do, when instead you could have turned a 28% profit? And of course, none of these shareholders were consulted by anybody. The Twitter board, the investment fund managers, they're just doing this unilaterally without consulting you, and you're going to lose your money. They don't care. They don't care about you. Because the prospect of a Twitter world where the public square actually is a free speech zone is terrifying to the elites. It threatens their hold on power. Look at what they tried to do to take down Joe Rogan. And in this past week, most of the blue checks and all of the major media outlets came out in opposition to the Musk offer, actually framing his bid as a threat to democracy. How many times have you heard those four words uttered in the past couple of years by leftists, a threat to democracy. Those words no longer have any meaning. A threat to democracy, if it's coming out of their mouths, means this is bad for our hold on power. The truth is they're terrified of a world where you get to decide for yourself which ideas hold the most merit, which news stories reflect the, the truth. Just listen to this clip from MSNBC's Morning Joe. Now, they're talking about Donald Trump here, but in this clip, they accidentally let slip their thoughts on the public square. Listen to this. The dangerous you know, edges here are that he's trying to undermine the media, trying to make up his own facts. And it could be that while unemployment and uh, the, the economy worsens, he could have undermined the messaging so much that he can actually control right. uh, exactly what people think. And that is, the, that is our you, job. So Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough think it is their job to tell you what to think. Hey, that's our job. And we shouldn't be surprised to hear that, nor should we be surprised to know that the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of these companies trying to stop Elon Musk, they all think the same thing. Now, Musk is not trying to tell you what to think. I'll take him at his word when he says that he just wants to create a free speech zone. But that is a threat to them and to the elites. No more censorship. Well, Twitter, I'm pretty mad at Twitter myself because they censored the best and funniest satire site in history, the Babylon Bee, which you can still follow on Instagram, by the way, for hilariously exposing their hypocrisy. They also temporarily suspended the account Defiant Ls, another one of the best feeds on Twitter. This is the feed that shows pre-Trump or post-Trump and today sort of the tweets where 
leftists say one thing and then after their guy gets elected, they say something entirely opposed to that. And it's another exposing of their hypocrisy. And they have censored the vital work being done of libs of TikTok for exposing the TikTok posts by teachers and others who are bragging on TikTok about grooming your kids. But it's even more insidious than that. We all remember the oldest newspaper in America, the publication that Paul and I call the paper of record, the New York Post, they had a very important investigative piece on Hunter Biden, which the left says it's the Hunter Biden laptop story. Well, that's one way for them to kind of minimize it. Remember what they said? Oh, it's just Hillary's emails. Well, it sort of clouds the actual point. It wasn't about the emails. It was about the server in her basement, why she had it, and all of those emails from foreign despots and other folks who were using her foundation as a slush fund because they thought she was a shoe-in to get elected. That was the scandal, was the fact that she had a her own server in her basement when she was supposed to be using a government email account. Well, this isn't just Hunter Biden's laptop. It was emails and other things that allegedly proved that foreigners were trying to buy influence in the Obama administration. And Twitter and their friends in big tech had that story memory hold. And that very possibly, we don't know for sure, but given the razor thin margins in the election, that could have helped Joe Biden get elected. And the results of a level playing field of ideas would not work out well for the elites because they know that their very tenuous grip on power depends on controlling the language, controlling which facts you, the voter, get, and it depends on shaping the narrative. So Elon Musk must be stopped. And I suspect that you're going to see in the next few weeks this play out. Whether he succeeds or not, and you can take it to the bank that there are going to be lawsuits from Twitter shareholders who were denied that 28% profit I was telling you about. Whether Musk succeeds or not, he is a hero. Because this attempt to buy Twitter has exposed to all of us who is and who is not on the side of free speech. The elites and their media henchmen have shown how desperate they are to control what you hear. That all of the leftists as well, all of the people who have the Ukrainian flags in their Twitter feeds and, you know, people you know, Democrats, they're actually rooting against Musk because they don't want free speech either. Musk has exposed to America exactly why Twitter and, frankly, the rest of social media must be liberated. Elon Musk is a hero. And so the next few weeks, here's my prediction. You're going to hear about Elon Musk SEC violations. You're going to hear about him being a racist, an African-American racist, by the way. You might even hear more outlandish Kavanaugh-esque false allegations as the billionaires and coastal elites will do everything in their power to defame him and to stop him. And that should only cement in our minds that his cause is noble and that he is right. I'll say it again. Elon Musk is a hero. No, he's a superhero. He is 
America's superhero right now. And he joins on the pantheon of superheroes, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And you know that Paul Runyon and I love Ron DeSantis. And if you're listening to this show, I'm sure you do as well. We already owed him a debt of gratitude for his Parental Rights and Education Act, which set off a chain reaction where not only Disney was exposed as a threat to our child's innocence, but thousands of teachers around the country showed us that they could not be trusted. So we owed him for that. But what was Ron DeSantis up to last week? You probably heard of this, about this, maybe not. But last Monday, Governor DeSantis signed the Responsible Fatherhood Bill. Listen to this. This bill appropriates $70 million to promote fatherhood. How do you promote fatherhood? Well, most of Florida's jails, and, and frankly, most of the jails and prisons around the country, at least the ones that, that house men, and we'll have another story on related to this in our final segment, but most of these prisons are full of people who did not have fathers in their lives. So much of this money is going to go to nonprofits that help people when they get released from prison to find jobs, get stability in their lives, get parenting education, and reconnect with their kids. And among those nonprofits who are postured to do this work was one organization called All Pro Dad. And at the bill's signing was the founder of All Pro Dad, legendary NFL coach Tony Dungy. He's also a, an analyst on, on Sunday Night Football. This bill is pure benevolence, pure goodness. This is the kind of legislation that we should see federally in every state in the union, and we're probably going to see more like it. You know, a lot of states have copied Florida in many ways. DeSantis and the Florida legislature are hitting home run after home run, and that's what this was. It was such a no-brainer that it passed in the Florida House 117 to 0. And in the Florida House in Tallahassee, that's unheard of. And in the Senate, 38 to nothing. In, in today's day and age, that's truly remarkable. <laughs> and yet, you go on Twitter on Tuesday, and you see the fellowship of the miserable, the leftists, just skewering Tony Dungy for standing on the stage with Governor DeSantis. Keith Olbermann, I used to like this guy. I want, you know, do you remember... Sports Center with Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann, a great duo. Olbermann, a once great sportscaster who is now just a festering sore on humanity. And the equally wicked publication, Deadspin, both accused Dungy of, quote, being a political prop for bigots. Now, Dungy, the class act that he is, not only did not apologize for doing what he has always done, which is serve God and try to address the fatherhood crisis. He pointed out that former President Barack Obama was outspoken on this topic himself, on the need for fathers, and particularly in the black community. Now, if you're not a football fan and you don't know who Tony Dungy is, he is, he happens to be a black American. And Dungy is right. This issue of fatherlessness in our country is too critical, too important to be deterred by chirping from the cheap seats. 
The left likes to use the expression, do the work. And it's usually in some sort of forced apology, like Katie Hill or, or somebody like that. But the keyboard warriors, they don't do any work. They do nothing. While people like Tony Dungy are out there actually doing the work. Tony Dungy goes to prison all the time. And he ministers to young men in prison, trying to help them turn their lives around and trying to get them to reconnect with their kids. But what does it say about these people? And again, there were hundreds of them on Twitter calling out Tony Dungy and saying vile things about him for promoting fatherhood, for promoting responsibility. America has a fatherless crisis. The record crime across the country, huge rates of children being born out of wedlock, and more than a quarter of America's kids have no dad at home. And when I say no dad, that's no biological dad, no adopted dads. You go to a jail or a prison, and many of most of those lost souls sitting there are there largely because they did not have a man in their lives showing them the way. And when they stepped out of line, they didn't have a man disciplining them in an appropriate way so that they didn't step out of line again. This is particularly true. It's the elephant in the room, but we have to say it. This is particularly true in the black community. And yet the woke white leftists will call out a black man, Tony Dungy, for doing something to address this crisis. And as for the organization Black Lives Matter, well, we know what they think about this until recently their website proudly exclaimed that BLM was opposed to the nuclear family. So much for Black Lives Matter. So last week, Elon Musk, Musk helped expose all the powerful people in America who are opposed to you having freedom of speech in the public square. Never forget that. And Ron DeSantis, who already exposed to us the legions of sickos who either think it's okay to groom kids or who are already doing it, joined Tony Dungy, a God-fearing patriot, in addressing maybe the biggest crisis in America, the fatherlessness crisis, and in the process exposed a pack of blood-sucking leeches who are apparently opposed to the nuclear family. These three men are superheroes, and we owe them all a debt of gratitude. But it's not enough to see what these men have exposed. We have to act. We have to protect our children and rebuild our country. And so that means speaking out. That means sharing what we know. That means telling people to listen to the Midnight Ride. And that means, most importantly, we all have to vote in November. Got about 204 days left until the midterms, and we all have to be there en masse. When we come back, if you thought the violent crime was contained to the inner city, though, think again. The criminals are branching out. And it may be actually exactly what we need to fix the problem. Stay tuned. The Midnight Ride continues when we come back. We are back. Now, this next story is very troubling. And yet, if you bear with me, I'll explain why there is a silver lining in this particular cloud. The story comes to us from the website I know you're all familiar with, Real Clear Politics, and we're all following that in the run-up to the midterms. 
Real Clear Politics has an investigative wing called Real Clear Investigations. And reporter James Varney did a story with the headline, L.A.'s Crime Surge Migrates to Wealthy Whiter Zip Codes of Boldface Names. This is a fascinating piece. And it's not surprising to some of you, as we have a lot of listeners in the Southland, L.A. in particular. The gist of the story is that Los Angeles, as we all know, is in the midst of a crime wave, as are a lot of other blue cities. This crime wave is fueled by the galactic incompetence or maybe even intentional dereliction of duty from District Attorney George Gascon, combined with the defunding of both the LAPD and a shrinking budget for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Things have gotten so bad that the city was forced to reverse course and refund the LAPD, but it looks like maybe that was a little too little too late. So the story relates how in the city of Beverly Hills, crime is spiking upward, and not just Beverly Hills, but places like Hollywood, Santa Monica, and Malibu. These are the lily-white enclaves that house the rich and famous, and where a couple of years ago, maybe the only crimes you would have seen were the makings of the Fast and Furious series and the Masked Singer. But now, not so much. It's a totally different ballgame. Robberies, burglaries, car theft, aggravated assaults, and even rape have all spiked upward in these locations. And this phenomena is pretty chilling for a lot of people because the richer and the whiter the neighborhood, the greater the increase in crime. According to the story, last month, robbers stole $3 million in a smash-and-grab robbery at a jewelry store in the zip code 90210, which we're all very familiar with. And the jeweler says that in that town of Beverly Hills, his clients are now afraid to wear any jewelry at all. The story also says that the U.S. Postal Service has now suspended deliveries to a neighborhood in Santa Monica due to rampant theft. Santa Monica in this particular neighborhood has the homes of people like Tom Cruise and many other Hollywood actors who work in that general vicinity. And in neighborhoods in Los Angeles where white residents comprised a minimum of 81% which in a city of Los Angeles means that it is a super rich area because LA is very diverse. Rape in those lily white enclaves is up 18%. Whereas in everywhere else in Los Angeles, rapes are down except for these really rich areas. So what does all this mean? Well, for one thing, it is certainly proof that criminals in Los Angeles have become emboldened with George Gascon is attorney general. The thugs and crooks know that, well, they think that they're not going to get caught. But they also know that if they do get caught, they'll be let right back out on the street. Gascon is famous for no bail and giving very lenient bail policies to even violent criminals. This is all horrible. We don't like to see anybody victimized anywhere by criminals. But here's the beauty, I think, in all of this. These are precisely the neighborhoods where Barack Obama and Joe Biden go to raise cash 
for elections. These are the bluest neighborhoods in Southern California. And during the summer of the BLM and Antifa rioting, many of these same people were okay with the defund the police movement because they believed that the consequences would be borne by inner city residents if crime spiked upward and they wouldn't have to deal with it. And of course, that happened. But now, in a state like California, which is openly hostile to the Second Amendment of the Constitution, these wealthier, more influential Angelinos can no longer sit by and safely virtue signal because the crime has come to their doorstep. They are now terrified. And if the fear can be brought to Beverly Hills, it can also be brought, and maybe it will soon be brought, to Georgetown, the Hamptons, and Lakeshore Drive. If our nation's most powerful believe they're at risk, maybe now, just maybe, they will start electing leaders who carry out the most sacred and fundamental duty of government, which is the physical protection of the innocent. I hate to be cynical about this, but when minorities are getting raped and murdered, the politicians seem to care very little about it. Black Lives Matter only mourns the loss of black criminals, as we have seen. And the Democratic Party's policies, which are always framed as policies they enact to benefit black Americans, always have the reverse effect. And it's not just crime. So let me go through some of these. The Great Society, Lyndon Baines Johnson. This was billed as the war on poverty, the way to end poverty and lift up the black community. Certainly some people were helped, but what it ended up doing, and we talked about the fatherlessness crisis in our last segment, it ended up crushing the nuclear family among the poor people in America, white, black, brown, but it hasn't been more powerful than in, than the black community, where prior to the Great Society, blacks had children out of wedlock, wedlock in fewer number, in smaller numbers than whites. But now it is an epidemic in the black community, and it is dealing with these effects every single day. So the Great Society was a horrible thing for black families. Affirmative action a very noble aim, right, to increase opportunities in academia, to lift up the black community by giving access to elite institutions for students who wouldn't normally be considered due to quotas or whatever else, that has actually, and there's been a lot of studies on this, that has actually hurt black students. Many of these students are mismatched into schools for which they were not ready, which has resulted actually in a decrease in black scientists. And at law schools, places like the University of Michigan, which was the battleground for a number of the affirmative action cases that went to the Supreme Court, it has actually resulted in higher failure rates for the bar exam among these students who were admitted under these discriminatory policies. And when I say discriminatory, discriminatory against white and Asian students. And how about school discipline policies? In the last few years, the leftists have come out and said suspending and expelling students, black students, black boys, for violent acts against fellow students and teachers is a result of bias, that this is sort of this implicit bias and racism is, is why this stuff exists. Except there's one little problem. 
violent group of students in our public schools, sadly, is black students. And by eliminating suspensions and expulsions of these most violent, administrators have actually created schools where students are afraid to go. It really hurts the learning environment. And who are the victims of these black students that are committing this violence? It's other black and brown students and teachers. So they're often physically assaulted. And all of this happens in the name of anti-racism, but it really hurts the innocent, just like we're seeing in the, the crime spikes in these cities. The common denominator in all of this is soft bigotry. Rich white liberals see black Americans as children, quite frankly, and they lack the awareness to see that these policies like affirmative action, eliminating the school discipline, and especially defunding the police hurt black people most of all. If they actually went out and talked to some of these Americans, they would find out that people in the city, especially black Americans, are very opposed to these policies. They want to fund the police more. They don't want to defund the police. They're the ones that have to live with the results. Well, now some rich white people are having to live with the results. And so far, the response by Governor Newsom, Mayor Garcetti, and the authorities has been pretty pathetic. People are actually being told, don't leave anything in your cars because, you know, they'll smash the window and break it. And when people do get their cars broken into, they're almost shamed, you know, if they had anything stolen because they should have known better. You may have seen recently that the actor Seth Rogen, you know, was in some sort of Twitter discussion with somebody talking about this phenomena because these car thefts were, were extending into Santa Monica and some of these places where the creative types, the Hollywood types live. And Rogan basically said, well, look, I'm doesn't bother me. I, I'm smart enough to know not to leave something in my car. I'm sorry, that just doesn't cut it. This is only going to serve to anger and mobilize these elites who before were just going straight down the line Democrat all the time. But now some of these people are probably going to vote Republican for the first time. So while people of all backgrounds and ethnicities are being victimized in Los Angeles, well, at least in places like Orlando, Fort Worth, and Oklahoma City, some of these red cities and red states, people actually have the right to bear arms and protect their families and their property if the government refuses to do it. Which is why if you're living in Los Angeles or San Francisco or anywhere else in the dystopian hellhole known as California, I recommend escape while you can get to a red state where you don't have to worry about this quite as much. Coming up in our next segment, pregnancies in women's prisons. Well, I think you can guess how that happened. What are we going to do about it? We'll talk about that in our final segment coming up on The Midnight Ride. Our final segment today is not the good news story like we had last week. You might remember that last week's final segment was about Oberlin College getting their just desserts for trying to destroy a business in their community using their woke dogma to try to impose their will and destroy a mom and pop business 
That was a good news story. This one is not a good news story. This one out of the Washington Free Beacon, which reported that two inmates at an all-women's prison in New Jersey, the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility in Clinton, were discovered to be pregnant. And if you're wondering how women can become pregnant at an all-women's correctional facility, well, 20 years ago, you might say that if they had male prison guards, that would be you know, an obvious situation there. But in this case, this is partly thanks to the now activist leftist group, the American Civil Liberties Union, which sued the state of New Jersey in 2021, claiming that it was discriminatory to deny transgender women, in other words, men who want to be women or men who think that they're women, an opportunity to be housed in a women's prison. And actually, the Bureau of Prisons, according to the article in the Free Beacon, and this one that was written by Mr. Carl Salzman, he says that the Justice Department, President Biden's Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland, the Federal Bureau of Prisons just revised its procedures to allow criminals, convicted felons and others, access to sex change operations or therapeutics. This prison, which has over 800 inmates, now has 27 men in the prison. It isn't known whether the father of these two babies is the same man or if or if it's different ones, but the prison claims that the sex was consensual. You know, we're dealing with hardened felons here, so it's not hard to believe that a man could be convicted of violent offenses and claim to be transgender and get thrown in with women and commit rape. But in this case, the prison says that these men were engaged in consensual sex. Nobody's being moved out of the prison. This is just accepted as something that happens, apparently. It makes me wonder what we're going to do about this. I have never been to the Mahan Correctional Facility in New Jersey, and And frankly, I have not been to a prison or a jail in my lifetime, but I would, I would imagine, and I'll just fashion a guess here that doing time in an all women's correctional facility is probably a much better deal than doing time in an all male correctional facility. For one thing, you're probably a lot safer, no matter what crime you did, if you're going into a maximum security facility or a medium security facility where there's a lot of criminals, there's a chance that you could become a victim of violence in one of those places. It's probably not the best place in terms of creature comforts. I'm going to make an educated guess and say doing time at the Edna Mahan facility is probably a lot easier than doing time at, say, San Quentin or something like that. And so what's to stop any criminal, you know, given what the Biden Justice Department has just recently decreed that any prisoner can undergo these things. And in in the case of the prison in New Jersey, you didn't even need to have hormone therapy or any surgeries. They just said, hey, if, if you claim that you identify this way, then that's good enough for us. Well, it's not good enough for me, and it shouldn't be good enough for any of us, because once the word gets out, and and it will, because listen, felons and hardened criminals, 
they spend their time gaming the system, whether it's gaming the system for more privileges or trying to figure out a way to get out of prison more quickly or, you know, basically make their lives easier. Once word gets out among this population that they can do this, we are going to see a lot more transgender, quote unquote, inmates transferring into women's facilities. And that, whether people want to admit it or not, and whether the ACLU sees this or not, is going to lead to more rapes, more pregnancies. But, you know, there's a lot of people in in prison for acts of violence against women. What place would they like to be more than a women's prison? This is going to happen, folks. And so what do we do about it? I sort of see this as a pretty easy fix. The transgender movement, much like the gay rights movement, has gone from one of, hey, just please let me live my life the way I want and leave me alone, to you must accept me, you must accommodate me, and if you misgender me, then I'm going to try to destroy you. And we've seen that in every step along the way, from the debate over bathrooms a decade ago to the women's sports thing and and now this. And if you go back to the bathroom bill, remember the North Carolina, the state of North Carolina passed a bill that said that you could only use bathrooms where that ident- matched the sex on your birth certificate. And you saw mass boycotts of the state had to kind of back up and reverse course because they were losing a lot of investment and a lot of business. So they capitulated. But the fix there just might be that instead of having large bathrooms where a bunch of men or a bunch of women can go, you have just a couple of small bathrooms where only one person can go in. And whether you're male, you're female, or you're two-spirit, pansexual, whatever it is, you can anybody can go in there and lock the door behind them, but they're not going to be in there with any anybody else. That's the solution to that bathroom debate, folks. As far as sports go and locker rooms, this is sort of where we kind of got to draw the line. I mean, Title IX was designed to give girls an opportunity to get the same free education and the, the same ability to compete and have all the benefits of competition that those young men on the on the gridiron or the baseball diamond or the basketball court have. So when you give men scholarships to compete in women's sports, you are not only taking away their opportunities for education and competition, but you're forcing them to get dressed in a locker room with somebody that has a penis. The fix here, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the left frames this as, well, it's a transgender sports ban. I mean, we've seen South Dakota and Kentucky and many other states recently pass bills banning this. Utah, which only currently has four transgender athletes, but the Utah state legislature, as we, as we told you a couple of weeks ago, overrode a veto by Governor Spencer Cox and also banned transgender sports ban the athletes from competing, but you have to compete in your sex of birth. And I think the fix there is either what Utah and these other states did, or you create a separate division. And in places where there's a lot of 
transgender individuals like maybe Washington or California or New Jersey, well, you might have enough athletes to have a swimming or track and field heat that is transgender, if that's what those athletes want. But as it pertains to the prison population, I think the answer is very simple. You either are housed in the prison that matches your sex, or these states are going to have to build smaller prisons that house only transgender women or transgender men in them. And that might cost a little bit of money, but you can't just let these folks go, but you don't want to have women getting victimized by hardened male felons. Pardon the pun there. So once again, you know, here's the ACLU trying to do a policy that they think is eliminating discrimination and is good on its face because kumbaya, we just want everybody to be happy. And you ha- potentially have women getting raped in prison because of because of this decision. So that's my solution to those transgender issues is to, you know, you can, you can call it separate but equal, but, you know, in sports, there's an athletic advantage. In prison, prison is not meant to be something that's accommodating to people. If you do crimes, you hurt people, you, you are a menace to society, we shouldn't care about accommodating your every whim. You're going to prison and if you're going to delude yourself into thinking that you know you're a woman or whatever we're not going to put you or take advantage of the system you're going in either with men or we're going to put you in with other men who dress like women so on that happy note i think we're going to call it a show here i'm i'm actually looking forward to next week cuz i don't know where runyon is but when paul comes back <laughs> we're going to find out at the beginning of next show where he went. And, you know, maybe I'll get a little bit jealous because as you know, uh, my vacations are not quite in the same place, but you know, he, he may be giving a lot of you guys some good ideas every time he, he comes back from one of these places. We'll close by saying, I want to thank you guys for listening and, and for putting up with me and not having Paul with his, his wit and insight. I hope I gave you some, some things to ponder this week. If you like our show, please tell a friend that is that's what's really helping spread the word. You know, when people hear about things from a friend, it usually carries a lot more weight than an advertisement or something like that. So spread the word and, and please su- subscribe to our show. Give us a five-star rating and please join us next week as Paul Runyon will be back and Paul and I will continue to spread the word about threats to your constitutional freedoms. I want to thank you again. Connor Coughlin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Midnight Ride Podcast. We'll see you next week.